Please open your Bibles to John chapter 1. Our text this morning is the first 18 verses of John's Gospel. But as we come to the reading and preaching of God's Word, let's pray for God's help that we would understand what He says to us. Would you pray with me? Guide us, O God, in the reading of your Word and by your Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, and in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. John 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we all have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise be to you, O Christ. Kids, come up and join me. Welcome. Good to see you all. Yeah, come on up. There you go, find a spot. There, there's a couple over here. Yeah, there you go. All right, guys, once upon a time, a young girl, the daughter of a king, was captured by a fierce dragon, the fire-breathing kind, whose favorite snack was night nuggets with ketchup. As the story goes, a different knight, a knight heard about the girl's capture, and he decided something should be done. So he called his servant, Patsy, 
and said, Patsy, get the horses and the sword. And they went off to rescue the girl. After days of searching, they found the cave where the dragon held the girl. And they arrived just in time, it seemed, because although the girl was still alive, the dragon was about to eat her. The knight called to the dragon, Do not touch her, foul beast. I promise you this day that she will be free, and the children of this land will enjoy dragon nuggets with ketchup. In reply, the dragon growled, and sparks flew from his nostrils. As the dragon took heavy steps toward the knight and his faithful servant, the knight turned to Patsy and said, Okay, Patsy, get him. Patsy said, What? The knight said, Yeah, well, I mean, the girl needs, needs rescuing, but I didn't really sleep well last night. I don't feel my best. I've also got a blister on my right hand, and it kind of hurts when I hold the sword. And if I'm being honest, the dragon's a little bigger than I thought. So you do it, Patsy. Patsy said, what? What's wrong with that story? Eleanor. Yeah, exactly. The knight is the problem with that story. He knew what needed to be done, right? He promised a good thing, to kill the dragon and rescue the girl. But when the moment came, when the moment came, he wanted somebody else to do the hard, dirty work of making it happen. Well, guys, throughout the Bible, from Genesis 3 all the way forward, we've heard God's promise to rescue his people from the sin and death that we brought upon ourselves. God promised to kill the serpent and bring us home. And in what we just read from John's Gospel, we hear that Jesus is not at all like the knight in my story. Because when the moment came for the promise to be kept, for the hard, painful work of rescue to be done, Jesus did it himself. He didn't let someone else do the dirty work. Jesus himself came and died so that you and I could live. He fought with the darkness and overcame it so that he could carry us home to our Father and his. Guys, that's what love does. That's what God's love does. He promises and then he does the hard work of keeping that promise. Love goes lower and lower in order to raise up the one that is loved. And we call this good news because our God loves you like that. All right, guys. Thanks. You can go back to your seats. If you've not already done so, you can open your Bibles to... Uh, John chapter 1, although, uh, as you've seen the last few weeks, uh, we're in a, a different kind of sermon series, so we're going to be bouncing around a little bit, looking at a, a number of different texts. It was uh, a few weeks ago uh, in our study of Acts that we heard uh, the Philippian jailer cry out to Paul, what must I do 
to be saved? And we have used that question as an occasion for uh, exploring this idea of salvation as it is presented to us in the scriptures. And we, we began by asking, well, why would we need to be saved in the first place? Why do we need this salvation? And we saw that it is usually the misery of our sin, the, the misery of life in this fallen world that alerts us to our need of a Savior. When we experience the, the brokenness of, of living in a world under God's curse, ravaged by the realities of, of human rebellion against God, whatever form those miseries take, it, it opens our eyes to the reality that, that we need to be rescued. We, we are uh, oppressed by powers that are greater than we can handle. And so we need a Savior. But while the miseries alert us to that need, it is really our sin that is the root of the problem. Those, those miseries are, are merely the fruit of sin, the fruit of our rebellion against God and of his judgment against that rebellion. And so we saw that we need a Savior because of sin. And then last Sunday we heard that, that God promised to provide the Savior that we need. Our catechism asks, did God leave man to perish in the sin and misery of the estate into which he had fallen? Did, did God just abandon uh, mankind when our first parents ate the fruit of the forbidden tree? Well, of course, the answer is no. God did not leave us to perish. He did not abandon those whom he had created for himself, but rather, no sooner had they sinned, no sooner had they rebelled against him than he made a promise. A promise to rescue them, a promise to redeem them, a promise to reconcile them back to himself and to undo the damage caused by their sin. And so this morning we come to the question of who then is going to accomplish this salvation? Who is the Savior? That is the question that we come to. And if you remember the way that it was uh, phrased last uh, week uh, in the promise, we, we are really asking, who is the seed of the woman? Who is the seed of the woman who is going to crush the serpent's head? Who is the seed who is going to reconcile mankind back to God? And the answer to that question, as you already know, is going to be Jesus, the Redeemer. Jesus, the Son of God, come in human flesh. He is the Redeemer. He who is fully God, the, the eternal Son, a begotten, not made. He is the Redeemer. And He is the Redeemer through His incarnation, through His enfleshment, through His taking on of human nature. He comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as the ransom for many. But what I want us to do this morning as we consider these familiar truths is I want us to see that they are more than, than mere theological truths. These truths are a source of, of profound comfort and encouragement because they are for us a, a clear and decisive demonstration of God's love. 
So let's begin simply with the fact that Jesus is the promised Redeemer. He is the seed of the woman talked about there in Genesis chapter 1. And, and we, we see this throughout the scriptures. We, we see this uh, everywhere in the New Testament as we're told again and again that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. But we see it maybe most clearly in Galatians chapter 3. Turn there with me to Galatians chapter 3. So in Galatians, Paul is writing uh, to remind the Galatians of the the gospel that they had believed. And in the the context of that discussion, as he seeks to to remind them that they have been justified by faith apart from works of the law, uh, he writes to them, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is is Christ. Now the translators here who have, who have put this into English have, have sort of hidden the allusion back to Genesis because the word translated here as offsprings or offspring, plural or, or singular, is really that word seed. Who is the seed? It is the seed of Abraham who is the one who is to be the, the promise. But of course, who is the seed of Abraham? Who is the child of Abraham? The child of Abraham is the one through whom God's promises are going to be kept. Remember, in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham, out of all the families of the earth, he calls Abraham and he says, I'm going to make you into my covenant people. And it is the child of Abraham, it is through Abraham and through his family that God's promise there in the garden is going to be kept. And so the child of Abraham is the seed of the woman, and the seed of, and the child of Abraham is Christ, Paul says. And so we see here that, that God's promises are to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's what Paul will say later in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that all of God's promises are fulfilled in him. All of God's promises are yes in Christ. This is why when, uh, when Jesus comes, uh, that uh, Mark can tell us that uh, he came proclaiming that the time is fulfilled. What does that language mean? What does Jesus mean when he says that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand? He means that, that, that all of history has been, has been building up to this moment. God has been working out his plan of redemption. He has been working out his, his, the fulfillment of his promise. And now the fulfillment has come. The time is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He comes as the fulfillment of God's promise to bring salvation to those whom he had made in his image, to those whom he had made for himself. It's why Paul can say in in Galatians chapter 4 that Jesus was born in the fullness of time. In the fullness of time. When when God's plan was was ready to be fulfilled, when the, the promised salvation was ready to be accomplished, Christ came. It's why in his letter to Titus he can refer to the coming of Jesus, the first appearing of Jesus there, born to the, to the Virgin Mary. He can, he can refer to that as the, the coming of the grace of God. God's grace appeared in Jesus Christ. God's grace is embodied in him. 
It's why when we read the stories of his birth as they are, uh, as they are recounted for us in the Gospel of Luke, uh, that, that the coming of Jesus is, is the coming of the consolation of Israel. Remember that? Remember when, when Simeon holds and he says, he says, according to your promise, God, I now see, I now hold in my hands the consolation of Israel. Here is the one who is going to bring the promised comfort. Here is the one who is going to bring the promised salvation to those who are miserable under the curse. And it's why when, when Mary prays, celebrating the, the gift that is hers through by the Holy Spirit, she thanks God for raising up for his people a horn of salvation. Jesus, her son, is that horn. Jesus is the Savior, the one come to bring to fruition all that God had promised. In him, truly, all of God's promises are yes and amen. Jesus Christ is the promised Savior. He is the one who is going to do and to accomplish all that God had promised to do. And so the question of who is the Savior becomes the question of who then is Jesus? Who is this one? Well, if you'll turn back to that passage that uh, Sam read for us in the Gospel of John, these, these familiar uh, verses at the, the beginning of John's Gospel, we begin to, to see who Jesus is. We see that he is the eternal, only begotten Son of the Father. Notice even how the prologue to John's Gospel begins, in the beginning. Those are, those are familiar words. Those are words that would have echoed in the ears of, of everyone who, who was familiar with the Old Testament. Everyone who was familiar with the way the Old Testament itself begins. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And here, John intentionally echoes that beginning, saying that in the beginning... In that beginning when only God was, in that beginning before he had called into existence that which formerly did not exist, in the beginning before he created the heavens and the earth, in the beginning before creation was the Word. The Word was in the beginning. And if we, we missed it, we're, we're told there that the Word was with God, the, the, this word was with God in the beginning when God was creating the heavens and the earth. But more than that, this word was with God and this word was God. You've probably heard the debates about the, the article and whether this is a God or, or the God. It's, it's kind of a silly debate unless you're in academic circles because even if this is a God, there is only one God. Hero Israel, your Lord, your God is one. And so clearly, uh, this is Yahweh. This is God. This, this word is God. He is Yahweh, the, the maker of heaven and earth, and he is with God. Now that begins to blow our minds, does it not? How is this one God and with God at the same time? How can there be one God and yet there be Two, we, we don't understand it exactly. It begins to, to, to swirl in our in our thinking as we try to, to make sense of it. But it's, it's clearly stated in the beginning, in the beginning, before there was creation, there was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And 
All things were made through him, so much so that without him was not anything made that was made. Here is the creator God, God himself with God. And he is life. He is the one who is going to bring life to men who are dead and their trespasses and sins. This is John's pronouncement about who Jesus is. But this is not the only place that we we hear this testimony that that Jesus is God uh, himself. Uh, Turn just a few pages over to to John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, the, uh, the, the, the Pharisees and the, the, the teachers of the law, they are, they are contesting with Jesus because he has claimed to be uh, the, the light of the world. And, and, and they have denied that, that he could be any such light, for he is one born of iniquity. Uh, they know his story. They, they know the story of, of Mary being pregnant before uh, he was married, uh, and, and so Jesus says to them, no, uh, I am exactly who I claim to be. And he goes on, as you see there, he says, um, uh, the, the Jews, verse 48, he says, the Jews answered, are, you not right in, uh, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I not seek my own glory, there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That itself is an unbelievable claim. When God gave his word to the Israelites in the Old Testament, he gave his word as the words of life. Do this and you will live. Now, Jesus is claiming the same thing for, for his uh, words. But, but what, does, what do the Jews say? The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Oh, who do you make yourself out to be? They understood the implications of of what Jesus was saying. They understood the the profound claim that he was making. They were accusing him of blasphemy. They were accusing him of making himself equal to God. And Jesus said, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. If this is just something I'm claiming for myself, you don't need to worry about it. It's, It's no big deal. It's demonstrably false. But it is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say to, uh, that you do not know him, I would, uh, that you know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it, and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, yet you have seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Here is Jesus just conversing with the the Pharisees, the the Pharisees who clearly understand the implications of all that he is claiming about himself, and they they cannot accept it. They cannot believe it. He is is making himself equal with God, and yet Jesus says, it's not not just my claim. It It is God himself who demonstrates that I am his son. He is the one who will, as Jesus will pray later, give me back the glory that I had with him before the creation. I have have been humbled. I have been humiliated. But I will be exalted. 
and my glory will again be seen. And then he says climactically, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. Echoing back to, to God's own covenant name, Yahweh, revealed in the Old Testament to the people of God. God said to Moses, tell them, I am sent you. And Jesus now claims that name for himself. He is making himself equal with God. The glory I had before the world began, he said, the Father will restore to me. And of course, it's not only in John's gospel that we, that we see such bold claims. In Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus uh, tells uh, the, the disciples, that, that he is greater than the temple. The temple, which, which was the, uh, the, representative, the representation of, of God's presence with his people. That's what the temple was all about. The, the temple was, was God's promise to abide with his people. And yet now, Jesus says, I am greater than the temple. One greater than the temple is here. He claimed to be the very presence of God with his people. And he did things that only God could do. You remember the, the story when, when four friends brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus. They, and they went to great lengths to, to get him in front of Jesus, even removing the uh, pieces of the, of the roof so that they could lower him down into his presence as he was surrounded by the great crowd. And you remember how Jesus responded it was clear what the, the friends wanted. They, they wanted Jesus to heal their friend. They wanted their friend to walk again. And yet Jesus looks at the friend and what does he say? He says, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Of course, he goes on to, to heal the man, claiming that, listen, if, 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 to show you that I can do the greater thing, let me do the lesser thing. The lesser thing is to heal. The lesser thing is to heal the body. But the greater thing is to forgive the sins that are the source of the curse that bring misery into this world. And I have come not just to deal with the misery. I have come to deal with the root. I have come to deal with sin itself. And so Jesus claims the authority to forgive sins. And not only does he, does he claim the authority to forgive sins, but but he accepts the worship of his disciples when they finally see. Think again how the, the story ends after Jesus' resurrection. You remember Jesus appears to, to the women, then he appears to some of the disciples. He appears to, to the eleven, but, or, or to the ten actually, because uh, Thomas is not there. But then a week later he shows up and, and he shows himself to Thomas and he offers Thomas the, the opportunity to even touch his hands and his side. And when Thomas sees Jesus, the, the resurrected Lord, the reality of who this one is that stands before him finally dawns. The Holy Spirit opens his eyes to see and he falls to his knees and he says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus receives his worship. A stark contrast to what we, we see from the apostles later when, when they perform a miracle there in Lystra and the, and the crowds think that this is God come in, in human form and they begin to worship and they tear their clothes and they say, no, no, we are men like you. Jesus offered no such protest. He received the worship, the worship due only to God because he was God. We see it again and again and again throughout 
the Gospels. And we see it throughout the rest of the, the New Testament as well. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Here is Jesus. His word is the word of God that sustains the cosmos. He is God. We see it again in, in Paul's letter to the Philippians. As Paul holds out Jesus as, as an example of, of, of humility, he says, uh, let each of you not look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Equality with God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here is Jesus equal with God. We're so familiar with the, with the language, we don't understand how, how impossible it would have been for, for a, a Jew like Paul to write those words. Here is one equal with God and yet not the Father. It is, it is beyond our, our comprehension. And we see it again in, in Colossians chapter 1. He speaks of the Father saying, He, the Father, has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and has transferred us where? He has transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. So the Father has qualified us for an inheritance in His kingdom and established us as, established us as citizens of that kingdom. And who is the king of this kingdom? It is the Son, the beloved Son of the Father. And it is the Son in whom, he says, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the Savior. And who is the Son? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Who is the creator? God is the creator, the Almighty. Who is the creator? Jesus is the creator. He is the one who has created all things. See, what I want you, what I want you to see here in, in all of these texts is, is that the deity of Christ is, is not hinted at here or there once in a while. It is there on every page. It is the assumption of the New Testament from beginning to end. It is the assumption of, of the apostles because they learned it from Jesus himself who claimed to be I am who claimed to be worthy of all worship. Jesus presented himself as God, as the Word who was with God and who was God in the beginning. This is the clear testimony of the Scriptures from beginning to end. Jesus is God. This is, this is not an idea that developed later. This is not an idea that, that was woven in here or there after the fact. This is the foundational testimony about who the Savior is. The Savior is God. And yet the Savior is also man. We, we see it in John chapter 1. Turn back there. 
in this amazing passage, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. That is as, as profound a height as you can imagine, and yet we're told there in verse 14, and this very Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. We saw his glory while he was among us. The eternal son, the eternal word, took on human flesh. He took on full humanity. He he was born of a woman. He was was born. He he grew in the womb and then then came forth at the, the appropriate time. And then, having been born, he was nurtured and raised as a child a child who needed to be protected by his parents from the the threats of of an evil ruler who wanted to take his life, a a child who had to be taught, a child who grew in stature and and wisdom, we're told. And he became a man, an ordinary man, a man who, who experienced hunger after a time in the desert. Think of Satan's temptation. It's no temptation if if God is not, if Jesus is not man. He experienced fatigue. Think of him sleeping on uh, the boat as the the storm rages and his his disciples fear for their lives. He experienced the full range of human emotions as we we see his story throughout the gospel. How often do do we hear him having compassion upon those who came to him in their desperation? But not only compassion, we we hear of his anger towards the, 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 the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who would oppress the people and silence the good news of the, the Savior. And we hear of his frustration with his disciples. Do you still not understand? Do you still not get it? How are you talking about ordinary bread? I am the bread. How can you not understand? I've been with you for so long. How long must I endure? How long must I put up with this generation? And Hebrews tells us that he experienced the full range of temptations without sin, but yet tempted in every way. And of course, we see his humanity on full display when at the end he is arrested, beaten, bloodied, crucified. When he dies upon a cross, his human life is taken or should I say, laid down for those whom he came to save. He gives his life as a ransom for many. And so the scriptures present to us this mystery. Here is one who is the eternal Son of God, the Word who was God and who was with God, not the Father, yet equal to the Father. And yet here is one who took on human flesh, who was a man, and all that that entails. And the church has, has long struggled to, to make sense of, uh, of this mysterious testimony, of, of the way that the scriptures speak about Jesus' identity. How do we make sense of one who is God and yet man? Well, that's exactly how we make sense 
of this one. He is fully God and he is fully man. We, we may not be able to, to, to fully uh, uh, understand the mystery. We may not be able to, to plumb the depths of, of all that is true here, but the church has confessed upon the testimony of Scripture throughout the ages that in Jesus Christ we have one who is fully God and fully man, one who is one person. He is Jesus. And yet, he has two distinct natures, God and man. Without mixture or confusion or separation, here is a man with with two distinct natures in one person. This is the Savior. This is the one whom we need to see. God come in human flesh, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But why? Why was that necessary? Why did God have to become man? Why did God have to take on human nature? Why did he have to be enfleshed, incarnate among us? Well, again, the church has long wrestled with that question. Why the God-man? But the answer is clear, is it not? Jesus himself says it. I came to give my life. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus came in human flesh that he might die for our sins, that he might be delivered up for our trespasses and raised again for our redemption. You see, the Redeemer needed to be human so that he could stand in our place as our representative before God before the the judge, before the the Almighty who had made us for himself, against whom we had rebelled, to whom we were accountable. And yet, the Redeemer had to be God because only God could pay uh, the cost of our redemption without being utterly destroyed. And so in Jesus Christ, we have the only possible Savior. God himself, in all of his power, in human weakness. God and man together, two natures, one person. That's what we read in Philippians, did we not? He emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. He was born in human likeness. Why? So that he could humble himself and become obedient even to the point of death. Death on a cross. He came in human form that he might be our Savior. And when, you, and when you see Jesus for who he is, when you see him as, as God come in human flesh, when you, when you understand that he did that because it was only in this way that, that he could be the Savior that we needed, you understand why Jesus, why Jesus is the only Savior. There cannot be other saviors because there are not other sons. There is only one Son of God, begotten, not made. There is only one Son of God who, who took on human flesh. There is only one who who is able to save sinners. All other would-be saviors will necessarily fail. He is the only potential savior. But I want you to see not only that he is the, the only savior, I want you to see that he is the savior who came for us while we were yet enemies of God. You see, in Jesus' incarnation, in his coming in human flesh, in his laying down his life for our sins, in his paying the ransom price of our redemption, 
we see the ultimate demonstration of God's love. God demonstrated his love for us in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And really, that's what I want you to see this morning. I, I want you to see that, that, that God sends his son. He does not spare his son, but he, but he gives his son that we might be redeemed. This promise of salvation, it was not a light thing. The salvation that he promised, he promised only at the cost of his son's life. His son had to be humiliated. His son had to be humbled. His son had to be born in, in human flesh. And not only did he have to, to, to take on human flesh, but he had to take that human life and he had to lay it down. He had to give it. He had to die that we might be redeemed. And it is in seeing God's love for us in the, the giving of the Son that our hearts of stone are melted. That we begin to understand the love of God for us. You see, people will sometimes devote themselves to, to serving God because they know they need a Savior. They, they know the miseries of this life and they want to be rescued. But they can only think in human terms. And human terms tell them that they, they must incline this God to give what he, only he can give. They must move this God to, to somehow honor them, love them, and, and, and bless them. And so they devote themselves to, to serving God in order to escape the punishment due to them for their sin and, and somehow secure the blessing that only he can give. But it never works. We may end up honoring God for a, for a time with our external actions, but our hearts remain far from Him. Our thoughts remain hostile towards Him. And eventually we will be overcome by our sinful passions. We, we need not only the, to understand our need of a Savior, but we need to see God's love for us, for it is His love that compels us. God's salvation is a gift, a gift of his love, a gift for his love for even his enemies that draws us to himself. And so in this text, in looking at Jesus, we need to see not only that we have the Savior we need, but we need to see that that Savior is the gift of God's love for us. God because it is God's love that ultimately captures our hearts. It is ultimately God's love that subdues us to himself. It is ultimately God's love that frees us to love him and to love our neighbor as ourselves. You see, it is God's love expressed in the person of Jesus Christ that brings us back, that turns our hearts from our rebellion and reconciles us to the Father who has loved us in the person of his Son. That is why the Christian life begins with seeing Jesus. With seeing Jesus as the eternal Son of God come in human flesh. And that is why the Christian life continues with setting our eyes upon Jesus. With day after day after day remembering that in him God has demonstrated his love for us. That God did not spare his son, but he gave him up for us all that we who were his enemies 
might be reconciled to him, that we who were under his curse might instead know his blessing, that we who were condemned to die might instead have eternal life. This is the love of God for us, a love that is sealed and secured and demonstrated beyond all reasonable doubt in the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, the eternal Son of God, become flesh for us. And because he has become flesh for us, that is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of your Son. Father, open our eyes to see him. Open our eyes to, 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 to wonder at his glory, to, to wonder at this display of your love for us, Father. Open our eyes to, to be humbled. Hum, open our eyes, Father, to, to be encouraged. Open our eyes to be strengthened, Father. Help us to see Jesus, that in him we might be reconciled to you, that we might love you, and that we might honor you all our days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.